would like to welcome our listeners to the podcast series Who's Universal, which we will be hosting in the run-up to the White West Conference at Austerhutte und der Welt in Berlin. The White West is co-organized by Kader Hatia and Ansam Franke. My name is Anna Teixeira Pinto, and our guest today is Denise Ferreira da de Silva. Denise Ferreira da de Silva is a philosopher, professor, and director of the Institute for Gender, Race, Sexuality, and Social Justice at the University of British Columbia. Her writings and artistic practice address the ethical-political challenges of the global present. Among her numerous publications are Toward the Global Idea of Race, published by University of Minnesota Press in 2017, and her forthcoming book, Unpayable Debt, which will come out with Sternberg Press in 2021. Welcome, Denise. It's a great pleasure to have you here, uh, especially because you've been already like part of the White West series in Paris. Uh, now feels like an eternity ago, right? Because this was before the entire COVID crisis descended upon us. Um, but uh, so to begin, maybe uh, I would start by uh asking you something that I always felt really curious about, which is a comment that you make uh, in the book Towards the Global Idea of Race about the death of the subject. And uh, you mention, I believe the quote is that the productive narratives of the subject render its death irrelevant. Uh, I wanted to ask whether it would be fair to say that the death of the subject is something that becomes more productive in terms of that which it forecloses than of that that it that 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 it utters. Meaning, uh, could it be seen as like a distortion, if you will, that uh, also operates a reconfiguration of the racial, as you mentioned? Um, thanks, thanks so much, Anna, for uh, the invitation to be part of this podcast series and continue the conversation we had at uh, White West Conference last year in Paris. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, yeah, yes, it does feel like like a generation ago, and maybe that's yet another death of that subject. Um, in terms in terms of your your question, uh, is actually a, a an interesting follow-up question to um, the statement itself, because the statement was primarily in the book was primarily about uh, pointing out to the fact that even though such a figure uh, as a transparent subject could actually be its death could be announced, what was yet to be done was to look into the ways in which. Uh, the tools and, and statements and formulations, concepts that had been uh, created to, to devise it, and then at the same time had been, and the ones I should say, which ha had been assembled to, in a way, uh, they, how do I say that, to, 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 to design its, its place uh, or its inhabitation, its proper inhabitation, those had not been touched yet. Actually, in the 1980s, the, the, the announcement of, of the death of the subject by you know, postmodern anthropology and by um, uh, philosophers like Lyotard and, and Vatimo, this announcement Actually, what they were saying is that the very tools that enabled um, 
the subject to thrive had now somehow emancipated from him and were now set, set against him. And, my, and, and in the book, I was challenging that kind of celebration precisely because I could see in the ways in which in raciality, uh, the subject remained very much well and alive, right? As it appears bo both in, in the notions of racial difference and uh, cultural difference. So the answer to your question as a follow-up question is precisely yes. Now, so yes, in the sense that the, the, the death of the subject actually foreclosed, has foreclosed more than allowed for um, you know, different sorts of engagement and and uh, a confrontation with raciality and its and and, and its working. Now, when I answer yes uh, to the question, I something else comes to, to me, which is the question of whether that is any anything can be open, anything can be brought about if we continue to engage uh, the subject directly. You see, if the subject and the questions that bring has have brought it about, if they remain uh, the center of our concerns, and this is a question for which I don't have any an answer yet. Would it be fair to say that uh, you know, like several uh, discourses that are uh, you know, like populating uh, now, like our um, contemporary times, could have like a similar function? in the sense that uh, uh, they foreclose more than what they would allow one to utter? Well, I'll have to ask you to elaborate. What kind of discourses are you referring to? <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm often thinking whether, like, uh, you know, discourses uh, that revolve around the question of posthumanism do not have, like, a similar function. Um. Well, um, and this not this is not an accusation. <laughs> what I'm what I'm about to say, um, it's really more. Um, it, it's more more on the side of a, a speculation, um, um, because what I and the speculation that is not an accusation has to do with uh, the question of what is it that is celebrated or lamented in any such announcement, such, no, announcement such as the post-something, like the post-modern or the post-human. Um, so in terms of what is um, celebrated, uh, the lamented is usually difficult to see because it's usually, uh, I think, about some kind of non-fulfillment or unfulfillment, some some kind of hope that somehow was connected to that which has gone, like the human or uh, the modern, and and that it failed to to fulfill. Um, but the hope, uh, what's celebrated, um, seems to be, and I'm thinking about posthumanism. What's celebrated seems to be finally. Uh, that finally we get to a point at which we realize that uh, the human or the modern, whatever, but the human did not, in this case, the, hum the human did not and does not and never had the monopoly 
of that which is valuable or desirable. So, um, so the foreclosure, and the, you know, so I'm agreeing with you. I think the possibility for foreclosing comes into, you can think of it in two ways. On the one hand, what for, it's foreclosed is any attempt at um, you know coming up with uh, different uh, ways, basis for describing something or for building something that would make life on this planet for everything and not only life, you know, better, whatever, like thinking in terms, in ethical terms and platonic ethical terms. And uh, so the, the, the so yeah, what's foreclosed the possibility of thinking something else, right? And, um, so maybe I should give an example, maybe not so much in terms of post-humanism, but, you know, in terms of new materialisms and the celebrations of the thing or the emancipation of the object uh, in this kind of um, of of um, accounts in, in this kind of uh, of problems, what I see is precisely uh, a displacement from the human, and then whatever is was good in the human, then now it's given to something else, attributed to something else, right? So some some kind of finality that can be found in the in the vibrant things, for instance. So that's what, now, what's, what that doesn't allow, what's, what's foreclosed there is a possibility of finding something else that could be um, then seen as good or better. So instead of, of, um, of animation, of being animated, instead of being vibrant, maybe there is something else about things and, and events that could be, uh, you know, that could be explored in terms of, I don't know whatever kind of goodness or it's uh, it's looked for. So yeah, so what I think what I'm trying to say is that what it's not that something that is already there or something that its uh, potential is is uh, it's foreclosed, avoided, but it's actually even the more basic questions um, that would open up a whole range of potentials and possibles that we don't even go there because we keep asking the same questions. And uh, yeah, so maybe I should stop now. Yes, no, thank you. Like, I, I think that was like a brilliant answer. Um, I also wanted to uh, bring up the uh, work that you've been doing on debt and finance and financialization. And uh, my question would be, you know, like, um, uh, in your writings, uh, you always now uh, um, race with this structuring force, like race as this structuring force uh, in uh, not only Western epistemology, but also like by extension uh, in geopolitics. But uh, race is not just a category of exclusion, so it doesn't only designate an exclusion or a negative. No, it uh, it has a it is productive. It has a productive force to it, and uh, you you I guess that it would be fair to say that you locate the locus of this productivity in finance. So in basically like the racialization of finance, and uh, how, for instance. Um, you know, like just to give an example, like the securitization of the bodies of the enslaved, uh, you know, like opens up like this wealth of financial possibilities that, uh, you know, like then engenders like the global financial system. And uh, so basically it's kind of like a question, comment or just like, uh, you know, like 
a request on you to elaborate. Uh, yeah, well, I don't know how much more um, I should add. Um, maybe, so we, we could say that I'm looking at it in financial terms, um, but then at the same time, uh, you know, tracing back to slave trade and and then also the trade of of the products of the commodities or the raw materials that were uh, extracted or, or or produced in in, in the Americas and then during you know the during while slavery was still the main um, modality of of production here. I am in Canada, so here in the Americas. Um, I think what I'm trying. So it is, it is, it is finance. It is, it is the money side of things. It is a possibility. I mean, the one, one part of one way of um, presenting the argument is the, is one that cap is that capital, um, capital is that which, which is invested, that which is turned into money and then invested, is is a is an abstraction of of um, of that which is being expropriated um in, in the under slavery so and that and that in, in in you know actually the actual body of the slave um and uh and uh and also the uh, native lands so i think what i'm trying to say it is it is more about the very the very whatever comes under the economic and whatever can be is described as source of wealth and whatever can it's um, is translated or transduced into into money that becomes capital or doesn't become capital, just is used for uh, buying toys for rich boys these days. What I'm trying, what I'm arguing is that it's all right. It's a transduction. It's a transformation of um, yeah of actual you know actual bodies. So I'm also uh, kind of shifting the notion of labor, but that that's something to be discussed in, in, in a different moment. But I think it is, yeah, it's more in terms of how do we think of the economic and then from a, from a left historical materialist perspective, how 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 can we re-describe um, labor so as to bring, to, to center slave labor, um, not in order to displace other kinds of labor, but also to bring it to the center as part of the same, um, as embraced by the same category and have the same um, the same role in the production and accumulation or reproduction of capital. Mm -hmm. uh, would you say that, uh, you know, like in the question of like securitization, like uh, one could always uh, almost say that the slave acquires this dual body or that the body of the enslaved acquires the dual character in the sense that, you know, there's in one hand the material body that is like producing value through the work. Uh, but then on the other hand, there is like this... Uh, abstract financial or spectral body that is like producing value in this completely different realm. Yes, I would agree with you that that extraction, right, to have that is that is extraction, maybe maybe not that it's not a, two different kinds of extraction. There are two moments of extraction. One which is that that which that that material and embodied thing that is extracted and then that is also 
I don't think it is it, it is not symbolic, but it is, I think, primarily you said spectral in your description. But I but I think spectral may be a, a name for something that is um, is more in the sense of what, what is expected, you know, the, the potential, the possible, the future, there is a temporality in there, which is which, where the money is, right? Whether, whether it's in terms, you think of it in terms of risk, which is the for instance, in the case of the, the subprime loans, or if you think of it in terms of, of a potential, of a possible actualization, and then, and that that's, um, you know, also, that's what is, I mean, the, the two of them are very much together. So along those lines, thinking temporally, uh, I mean, looking at the role of temporality in, in, in finance, then I can, then of course, it can be, it starts the horizon of death, but it's, um, to my argument, I should say about globality, but then that I think we have to do some, some adjustments not not adjustments in changing um, the argument, but adjustments in terms of how how would you describe that relationship? And then, of course, I haven't had the chance to think about it. <laughs> so I I'll think of a cloud now, and then if I listen to this podcast and think that it's all it makes no sense, I will disown it. Okay. It's an interesting invitation uh, to think about. The relationship between capital uh, in its diverse, different um, modes of uh, operation, like you know, trade and industrial capital and, and financial capital, and uh, and then and then the core of modern representation, right? How actually, you no, know, the the very ontological core, and so what I was thinking uh, now, it's. Um, that is a way in which if you you can think of the planet and somebody said that i can't remember where i re read it but you can have i think it was was it kant yeah you know is is it is a it is an exhaustible resource that, that you know when he's writing about cosmopolitanism it is this finite the planet is finite and and i and i think so from from galileo uh right you have this reversal that the planet is finite but then at the same time the planet the the, the it is earth it is where uh, it also gives the limits of how how we think so you know so then he's like criticizing aristotle's uh emphasis on three and then and the, the idea that the circle is perfect and the heavenly bodies are perfect and earth is all you know fallen whatever and then we come with the lines you know uh, Galileo shifts this thinking to a linear one instead of that Aristotelian. Um, and so that is along the lines along which I would like to bring, I would like to think about your question about the relationship between this this what what I'm, I'm identifying as two aspects of extraction and and finitude in terms of of the global space itself and why that. I don't think that it's um, it's something that we can say. Okay, at that moment, that person, that philosopher, that political economist, whatever, thought about it along those lines. But I think we could speculate about 
once 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 thinking and which is very much tied to you know invention and discovery towards extraction and accumulation of wealth uh once those two come together and and are directed to the global context um we might i think we might think two things i think two things on the one hand the yeah that's kind of obvious on the one hand the actual definitude of of what is exploitable what is extractable um and then on the other hand the impulse to the impulse to to accumulate more to have more so that is what it is and and then that is what what it could be now the things that the planet is finite so that what can be cannot be um described or thought or entertained in terms of you know the actual the planet it is projected onto its own time right so it, it will come in time and that's what the, the financial speculation is right is that why security you know securitization makes sense because that is so temporarily the time kind of uh, enhances how fundamental it is to, to modern representation time holds that um the possibility for more cannot be in space because you know there is only so much planet <laughs> to be to be extracted so thinking along those lines then going back to the horizon of death um my argument about raciality has a lot it's precisely because of how, how it, it has functioned as a descriptor for the global context for that finite global context um which gives both gives the limit to what's european white and valued um gives the limit on the one hand um because it's you know specialized and divided different racial groups from different regions of the world so on the one hand have that and then on the other but then at the same time what whiteness and europeanness have been uh you know, associated with precisely time, tempora temporality, that which is not finite, that line that keeps going. You know, like I was wondering if one could, one could even see in here like some sort of like, uh, um, you know, like uh, in this operation, you know, like also like this matrix of like how, uh, you know, like then blackness and whiteness function, you know, like as, uh, you know, like, uh, uh, ciphers uh, for uh, you know like the uh, the limited and the unlimited, you know, or the closed and the open. Um, yeah, no, no, yes, I think, yeah, I think definitely um, as as whiteness becomes, um, you know, as whiteness, Europeanness, and everything associated with the modern whatever is 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 in time right it makes sense in time only makes sense in time and continues to even i think even now so definitely it is I, that's yeah that's why i'm being invested in Yes, that's why i was mentioning the posthuman i'm a bit suspicious of these concepts that capture 
you know, like that even try to capture that which comes after a certain temporal, you know, like it's almost like a preemptive form of capture. So, but that's what I was, I was, I meant when, when I said, so what is it, what is that is lamented or celebrated in, in the post-human, right? What's celebrated, it's precisely that which is being associated with the human that is then separated from the human and, you know, projected onto the things. So the things now are alive, vibrate, whatever. And, uh, or, or the objects have emancipated, being emancipated from their relation to the subject and they can just, you know, uh, but that is that, and and that in the sense that so both um, life, right, and the, and and self determination, and life. You can think of life as a self determining, you know, the, the name for a self determining thing, something that keeps itself existing, um, or always up to a point. So that's what they they carry precisely these these attributes which you know have been associated with i mean that have been attached to whiteness and um and the human um so yeah when writing about when thinking about um global warming I, and then the anthropocene i was thinking uh precisely about that so like the critique of the anthropocene is one that um still gives the human um, this, this efficient causality, uh, you know, describes the human as, as an efficient cause, but does not really explore, attends to the ways in which the human has been uh, also the efficient cause in, in everything, right? In, in, in how, even in how we think about uh, the climate crisis itself. So that, you know, so just saying that the human is, uh, is guilty of of destroying the planet, it's not enough if everything else is still carries um, carries that element in um, in accounting for it, and they still also values that that particular kind of uh, of account. But anyway, I'm just went somewhere else. No, uh, well, I, I will seize on that uh, the question of life um, and. Um, this uh, um, idea that you sketch out in the towards the global idea of race that uh, uh, life uh, as a concept takes precedence over actual living things or over actual living beings, and uh, life is seen as an externalization, so to say, of uh, you know, like uh, sorry, the opposite. Actual living things are seen as an externalization of life. So, you know, like life is the principle and then, you know, like actual living ent entities are just a manifestation of this principle. And um, I, I was, uh, uh, when I was reading you, I was uh, thinking that uh, to me, this is actually like a very interesting point because it feels that it's a bit like the point where reason and life intersect in the sense that, uh, you know, the critique of reason uh, coheres around schools of thought, like for instance, vitalism. So basically, schools of thought that uh, foreground life and that oppose life and reason. But uh, if I understood you correctly, uh, what you're saying is that uh, those are actually not opposites. That, you know, like life is basically, uh, you know, like another manifestation or another face uh, of this idea of reason. Um, <laughs> that's a nice one. I'm thinking um, I was... I did something um, a week ago, 
and uh, and then somebody mentioned that Hegel's uh, is turning 250 this around this time. I don't know. So yeah, Hegel, um, nice <laughs> who's <laughs> who we have to thank for for um, not. It's not that he created this notion of the organic. I think that 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 notion has been there for a long time, but somehow. In the 19th century, in the early 19th century, the organic um, came to the fore, both, you know, in his, in a way, through his philosophy, and also through the science of life. Um, but that's just an introduction to the answer, which is yes, yeah, um, I think life is. Uh, it's a rendering of reason, um, and and then if you look. Not so much in the science of life because of the limits that you know uh, scientific reason, the tools of scientific reason put on time, um, but it's still that is even in Cuvier's description of uh, life as a concept, there is some transcendental element in there because they have the parts, they have the functions, and something comes up, which is not the parts, it's not the movements, not the functions, but it is life, not right? this thing that comes together because things are put together in a certain way and they um, and every part that plays its role, etc. Now, so that's one way of saying yes. And then there is another way of saying yes, which is, again, something I have to, to think more about because I only started paying attention to it very recently, which is how the concept of the, the organic um, and then life as connected, you know, related to the, the concept is very crucial crucial connection here they both have um, they, they uh, it is as if they 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 provide two a combined two, ans uh, uh, two answers which are combined into one the question of why the why why of something like the question of the reason for something and one is it's a it's the, it's a formal one a formal one that is not necessarily, it's not the form of the abstract, can be also the forms referring to the parts and how they put together, and the efficient one. So, so the notion of life uh, refers to this, um, I was going to say, this, uh, you know, the self-sufficiency, uh, which is a self-efficacy, because the thing that you take is put together in such a way as to make it what it is to function the way it does um and those so those are there is a combination of two answers for the question of um that gives you uh, two questions that gives give you the same the meaning of um of reason not reason in the transcendental sense that life has but reason in in the in the more immediate sense of so the forms and and the, 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 the assembling of these different pieces, the putting together of them has an efficacy, has an, it has an effect which is uh, life, life itself. Now, we find it in other constructs like the algorithm. It is a form in the formal sense, right? That has steps that allow for some selections to be made. So something will, an output would come out. And it has the formal, that same sense of formal efficacy. 
So, and what I find, I have to do more thinking about it, but what I'm finding fascinating is then if that's the case, we have this organic, which was obviously circulating there in the 18th century. Then, you know, Hegel's the um, formulation of uh, transcendental reason kind of allows it to come to the center. And then in, in the 19th century, we have not only the science of life, but then um, the, or the, the science of man, uh, or, and, um, and then sociology, anthropology, like the whole of the social sciences, kind of, you know, structural fun functionalism, that's what I'm talking about. And then it comes up in cybernetics, and now it's totally governing our, our, our lives. So, um, yeah. So that's something I have been thinking about, whether actually we we have come, it's not that it's not the pervasive one, it at least didn't prevail in the 20th century, but formal efficacy might come to prevail. Um, now, the more our lives become mediated by, you know, these um, algorithms and other tools that, they, they work, right? I mean, the thing about the, the, this formal, um, about formal efficacy is that once it, once it's figured out how to put things together and to bring in order to bring about one effect, it seems to work very nicely. Um, but um, yeah, but I don't know. We it's something to pay attention in terms of a reconfiguring of reason, right? Which is nothing. Um, it's no longer transcendental. Has now you know as we, we have been talking about, we see it. It's doing its work in its imminency. It's out in its being actually so um, fundamentally in the very constitution of things that we don't even think about it as such. Um, so, but yeah, anyway. No, yes, I, I, you made me think about this book. I hadn't thought about it for a long time. The Erwin Schrodinger's What is Life? Uh, you know, like this book that he published in '44 that was extremely important for cybernetics, but also for molecular biology that actually has like, um, um, you know, like th there's this like um, Aristotelian principle that is reactivated there, this idea that, uh, you know, like form contains the principle of organization. And uh, so, so basically, uh, it's all, always the formal element or like, let's say, like the formal cause that kind of like uh, organizes life that, uh, you know, like the material cause or the material element uh, has no uh, uh, principle of organization. And that says, you know, like it's, you know, like Egel also said that uh, nature is fertile, but impotent, which is like something that to me really resonates with this Aristotelian principle. So I don't know, like, I guess that it, it, it feels a bit like there is a certain matrix and the elements keep getting replaced, you know, but the matrix itself stays in place. I don't know if I'm making sense, you know, like there's like a certain syntax to this logic. And though the semantics keeps changing, like the syntax uh, remains. That's exactly what it feels like. And then, and then it feels like it's impossible, right? I mean, also because we hope that that maybe there is such a thing as change and that we could actually think think differently but it is I'm, um i have a, i have an unpublished piece which eventually i'm going to, to get it published in which i i take the four 
you know, the four causes, Aristotle's four causes as a base as a basis for reading. Um, some key statements in in uh, modern philosophy, and um, and then once I do it, it's like yeah, it's like reading with the title because then they all make sense. You can see how one moves, you know, like for instance, now there is this return to formalism um, with Badiou and others, which like seriously, here we are back again. That was that you know that was done a hundred years ago or no more a little bit more in response to Hegel or maybe it was to Nietzsche and all those you know philosophers full of sentiment from the nineteenth century whatever so they keep going back because there are only it's very few pieces right um, in thinking because those pieces are uh, have been chosen as the ones which or maybe they have not been chosen but somehow they have operated in such a way as to create the conditions for so many things that it may be difficult to even imagine. Um, even even the, at the level of the imagination, we can't con con contemplate like the possibility of not thinking along those lines, as if something will be lost. But to me, it's like, what I wonder about is if we is it possible to come up with a question or questions that do not allow for those pieces to be redeployed? And then we have to really figure out some other ways. Um, that's, I think, you know, we, not, we have to do that because we keep asking the same question. You know, like I, I, I'm quite interested in this, in this, um, you know, like chronopolitical orientation uh, that modernity imposes in life, on life. Right. And uh, how so basically how the temporal dimension uh, enters the field of the natural sciences, uh, I mean, with Darwinism, Darwinism in biology, but also with thermodynamics in physics. And um, so, like, basically how even life is captured into this logic of accumulation, you know, it's it accumulates the future. Right. It keeps accumulating time. Uh, no, I wanted to ask you about this term that you use engulfment. Uh, that I was hoping you could unpack for us a bit. Um, yes, so that the term, <laughs> that's good. Um, the term was, I, I looked for one because I wanted to, to respond or, or maybe because I had two things in mind. On the one hand, I had in mind, um, you know, like the argument, in, especially in regards to Hegel, that um, that the others of Europe uh, had been produced as racial cultural things, meaning that that whatever you know, what's racial and cultural about them did not precede that production. That those two categories are not important, right? And then, but then at the same time, I want to acknowledge, because, because it's important, that there is a whatever about them that was there and that it's captured, not, not so, maybe not so much by the concept of um, the racial, because it has its scientific, you know, the 19th century, its scientific aspects, but definitely by the concept of the cultural, even though I would not deploy that concept. So, so with the engulfment, I want to describe precisely that process that, you know, the production of 
something which it is it is a production not of you know it's not the matter that it's created but it's through the let's use the language we're using through the form but then at the same time that very mo mo moment of production apprehends um that which is being produced to within the producer you see so the concept of racial difference does does that because the concept of the racial is the one that includes of course whiteness right but then it it also produces the racial orders um and there is a it, and there is a uh you know concept that makes sense in the in the trajectory of european thought or european thinking so it it apprehends something uh it doesn't account for all what it is but it also at the same time makes it impossible to even name that is you know because because we don't we don't have the names that being because we don't have the name names that would not then bring out either a uh, cultural difference or racial difference or some other kind of difference that it thought that is articulatable uh in um in, in modern in, in using the modern lexicon and, and and that grammar but then at the same time but then that is more right because and that's part of why engulfment was important not because I wanted it, but because I could not escape it, because of the thinking with and about difference itself. Uh, in the so the the principle of identity and difference works beautifully in this ontologically, because we cannot say that something is also without you know um, you know without going through. No, there are other laws of logic, right? Without saying that, what is assuming that it is not, and that that one thing cannot be that and something else. So, so engulfment is like is this the within the it is the within the without within, um, yeah, that it's there. And then at the same time, obviously, as a descriptor of power, is 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 one that it's it's not phallic, right? So, I was trying to avoid the phallic <laughs> description um and engulfment and i was inspired by rigaray in using it but it it would be a bit like saying that uh universalism does not simply crowd out others rather it has this kind of like voracious appetite and keeps feeding on you know like as in like metabolizing uh this others into its own bloated self yeah, one could say that that it keeps, you know, it extracts something, and it's it brings in, extracts something, right? becomes It becomes more inclusive, but then, the, but it does so precisely by also becoming more destructive in terms of what the possibilities that are, um, you know, annual, uh, you know, it includes uh, yeah, via digestion, as in something, as in like includes via digestion, as in like. Um, um, I mean, digestion is also a very violent process, right? You kind of like um, uh, break well, everything yeah. into this nutrients that you can extract, and then and then that is it. And then you divide that which you extract from, and then incorporate, and that which you excrete, right? The production of waste in you know in that in that process. Um, but then there is no disappearance. 
Yeah, okay, we can really go into this one. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, um, we, we, we could, but, but part of um, the, um, you know, I think that my preoccupation in there is also had to do with the, the acknowledgement and that, you know, the, the, that process of, of, of apprehension of that, you know, eating people, uh, this cannibalism of uh, Western philosophy um, creates, you know, the, the, that other is a, you know, the, it's a political figure, right? I mean, I, I also didn't want to totally disavow uh, what I, I call the minor uh, transparent subject, uh, but then, it's, but then at the same time, having it um, at the same time highlighting the fact that the political position that they they inhabit is kind of you know doomed in a way, right? Um, it's as long as it is thought in terms of universalism, it's it's doomed um, because of the the consistent demand you know demands for inclusion, etc. And I think that's this is something that we can. Um, I mean, we, we, it, it's, it's uh, horrible and tragic, but that can be faced, um, well, uh, so for instance, um, you know, just, I'm just thinking about the number of black indigenous and Latinx people, the, the, the percentage of black indigenous and Latinx people who've been dying, uh, you know, of COVID-19 in the US, which is, um, which so much, it, it's such a, it, it, it's horrible. and and dramatic, uh, you know, example of how the logic of obliteration, it operates even beyond, beyond uh, police brutality, right? I mean, because we think like that the police brutality is the one, the moment in which, okay, so that's racial violence, total violence, but then the different ways in which that engulfment, um, you know, in its social, you know, economic, juridic uh, actualizations, how it creates, um, yeah. So Ruthie, Ruthie Gilmore has that, that you know, that statement which uh, captures it uh, when she defines racism as, you know, subjecting people to premature death, right? Um, and that's what we see. Um, so it's not, it's not, I mean, you can say it's exclusion, but it's not exclusion because it goes you know, goes. It's so fundamentally inscribed, inscribed in the ways in which the the, the the smallest things about life, how they they are, that you can't say it's just because there was a moment when somebody said, "No, you not you don't, not you." Right? It's everywhere. Every you know policy decision, everything is in there. Even when in the US they decide now they decide to give I don't know six hundred billion dollars to six hundred. Uh, companies and not to, you know, the workers or the small business would keep those people working, right? Or paying people so they won't have to work in the essential service or whatever they could have done, like all those decisions. Um, One could say that exclusion is a way of describing an excess as a lack, right? Like an excess of repression, an excess of violence is described as a lack, which is always, uh, you know, like as a lack of resources, and and of course that always somehow um how do you say like um places it on the sphere of uh, 
absence of agency, as if there is no uh, real agent at operation there. Uh, I, I don't know if you uh, see what but I mean. I think that it, it kind of like creates, um, it, as in like it uh, um, um, removes, uh, you know, like the state uh, and state violence and state terror from the picture when you talk about exclusion, because it feels that it's something where it's just like about a lack of access to resources, not something that has to do with an actual access of uh, violence and repression and terror. Uh, yeah, so yes, especially thinking about it in this moment, but then at the same time, it also assumes that if you tweak, if you fix, if you take care of that, the whole system is actually welcoming. Right. That exclusion is something that takes place um, against uh, against the system, um, and that and that's fixable. And the, like I don't know how many years, sixty years, uh, we can see. I'm thinking, yeah, not not quite sixty, but in the U.S. at least we we can see the victories of civil rights being totally, you know, undermined, totally destroyed. Because you know all those those mechanisms, the, what's being attempted to you know, making to include, they have been destroyed and worse, right? Now, with this um, reawakening of white supremacy, is that and then there is the vengeance that came after Obama's uh, government, which had nothing to do with what the Obama administration in the eight years what they did of good, because it was horrible in so many different ways, whether or because he was black. Right. And they were able to, from Sarah Palin at the in the in 2008, the Tea Party, Trump, birtherism, and um, you know, and make America great again. All these um, more or less explicit expressions of white supremacy in response to um, the fact that, I mean, again, it's you know, saying this, whatever this, and now and now with Trump. Uh, trying to cancel black votes, basically, right? That's all they, he and the Republicans are trying to do. It's black votes that they are trying to cancel. It is like I think there was folks are saying, "Oh, he's you know, um, he's is an attack on the, on democracy." No, it's not an attack on democracy. It's an attack on certain voters that you know, cannot possibly have the right to to decide on the destiny of uh, of the country. So. And this is not because of the violence that the the the, the violence, the force, the ex excess of force that would how it's especially with Trump, the force is so much that it is threatening democracy in the US, <laughs> right? Because invalidating elections, saying that they are uh you know, corrupt or whatever. So this excess of force, I think, is what we 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 may want to look at and not so much at um you know, yeah, so the exclusion as a deviation from the norm. The norm is... The point of the White West Conference series has been to look uh, at fascism precisely from this angle as something that can perfectly coexist with social democracy or basically, to say it differently, uh, social democracy uh, always having this kind of gen Janus-faced nature, as in, like, uh, it shows a social democratic face to some, 
you know, like typically the white uh, uh, part of the population and shows another completely different face to others. Uh, you know, like, and uh, I think that um, you just see it in a more pointed way now under Trump, but it's not something that, uh, you know, it has been there like the whole along uh, and uh, not solely in the US. I mean, uh, uh, in Europe, typically uh, it has been, you know, like a feature. Um, no, yeah, no, that, definitely. And then these new laws in France now, I mean, these, um, yeah. I don't know how, I would like to hear more about how you guys have been thinking about it. Both uh, the Boris Johnson's minister attack on uh, critical race theory or reference to critical race theory, and then these new laws in France, it's, it is as if just before the US election, they just moved to the right. Defend Republican values in France. They asked uh, everyone employed by the French state to uphold the Republican values. And uh, yeah, it's like uh, coincidental with uh, Trump trying to uh, forbid the institutions of higher education from teaching critical race theory. And also, but you know, I mean, Okay, I don't. I don't know if if we wouldn't have to cut this out in the end because maybe like now it goes a bit too much on a tangent. But uh, um, I mean, honestly, you know, like it's not. Uh, this is not only like one. This is not this kind of deranged on unhinged sectors of society. This is pervasive. There's not, you know, like every conference that I attend nowadays, there is someone that comes to me by the water cooler and says, yeah, you know, like the real problem now is the, is the colonial theory. So it seems like on the one hand that is, yeah, the guilt. And then, but I think also on the other hand, that is a fact that, um, you know, the, the critiques that have, um, that, that highlight exclusion, they keep, the good Republican values intact, right? <laughs> because the, the demand for inclusion is a demand that's made under those principles. So, of course, it of course it will flip back. It flips back because once because it, it's like um, the attacks on affirmative action in the U.S., like the court responses, which are always about how they they you know, they violate the first the first amendment, and then at the same time, you know, they are supposedly they were supposedly to be implemented in order to realize, fulfill the First Amendment through the 14th Amendment, through equality, realize freedoms through equality. But, but, there is, but, the, but discrimination does that. The logic of discrimination does that. Discrimination is an act against, I think, all-inclusive universal order of things. So, um, I think that's the main challenge because we 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 don't have the. I don't know if we need different bases, different principles. Uh, I just know that we, even when demanding for, uh, you know, decolonization, we should make the demand under those principles, and then, and and that that is I call it in a piece a fail safe in that, in that in inequality that it translates it into liberty and then renders the, the, the fail-safe, renders demands for equality, demands against freedom, and it flips. And then all of a sudden, you know, it's we are there again. Um, so I think we, 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 we yeah, we, we must have some conversations uh, 
important conversations, both what uh, conversations that address white that, well fascism and how useful it is in different moments. It's been um, uh, guilt and white guilt and innocence and get out of that, like with a more you know quote unquote political about it, <laughs> and not go discuss terms along those lines. We we also need to have difficult, serious, and continued conversations about the different ways in which racial subjugation actually, you know, how it takes place, the differences, and not because the differences are important, but because because we uh, the, the battlefront is uh, complex and complicated, and we have to look at, for instance, what, you know, the, the trajectories of racial subjugation uh, for black folks um, in Europe, as opposed to what in, in relation to what happened to, to North Americans, uh, for instance, or Eastern Europeans, how it's how different it is, how you know different degrees of subtlety and different degrees of violence, and sometimes the same degree of violence, you know, against both. But when, why, how it's articulated? I don't, you know, yes, the, the colonial, but I think more importantly, it's time to to have those conversations in Europe, looking at the different state, you know, the states, and the different ways in which they are um, re redeploying the signifiers of whiteness, like Republican values, in order to prevent some things and facilitate others. Um, yeah, I think it's, it's time time to do that because it's not going to be easy. No, and also because there's this constant, um, uh, you know, like the way things are constantly inverted. So, for instance, uh, the way now, for instance, uh, the the uh, multivalence of like different viewpoints and different voices is seen as a lack of freedom of speech. So, you know, like basically uh, um, how everything is always inverted and how every positive step forward always gets dis distorted into a negative, into a step backward. And um, it's very complicated because, uh, you know, like you, you have like a lot of investment precisely in uh, this kind of narratives. For instance, like now this narrative around uh, a lack of freedom of speech uh, because there is like some sort of like encroachment of uh, identity politics and moralism and, uh, you know, like uh, this kind of pressures in the public sphere. Yeah, but it's, but it's also... Um interesting because we, we 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 know the terms we have seen the terms being deployed before and we know when they are deployed to each effect like you know like you know freedom freedom of speech and and whatever competition or you know those terms so why is it that we i mean what would take them for us to to do the kind of work necessary to you know to stop them, I mean, not maybe, maybe not successfully to stop them, but you know, to take them and say, "Here, you know, I was see, look at, look at, at, at the operation. Don't may it may be, it may be because we we pay so much attention to content and not so much to form, and it might be that you know, modern. I mean, I'm sure it is actually that modern 
um, power, power, quote unquote, is the term. It does its work through form because form is being the way. And, um, you know, and then you say, oh, what's being said? Oh, what's being said, you know, sounds like something else. While the form of, um, of the statement is what gives it away, is what, you know, actually the, doing the work, um, both of facilitating violence and then, and, and I mean, it's doing the work of facilitating more violence, but it could do the work of getting us out of this, of this hell, because it's like, you know, it's horrible, this thing. <laughs> um, so it's a nightmare. So I guess of, this, this brings us to your uh, sentence, like the end of this world, right? <laughs> <laughs> See, exactly. <laughs> Maybe. What, 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 what do we want? We want the end of this world. Exactly. Um, Maybe the I think I think the planet might have a chance if we end this world. There are so many things that we can say about about the current situation in Brazil. One, I mean, that is that is the fact that I'm more more explicit of how Bolsonaro and Trump came together in the in the two largest uh, quote unquote democracies in the Western Hemisphere, and that that's scary to think. You know both that they have been elected, and and the, and then also about the consequences of the, their time in power. And I'm not only talking about the number of people they are letting die; um, their decisions, you know, making die, you know, under under this pandemic. Something else that is similar about the situation in Brazil, and again, Bolsonaro and Trump, is how they both followed. Um, administrations which were um, which somehow could be seen as benefiting um, you know the vulnerable to use the term subaltern populations the, the workers party administration in administrations in Brazil and uh, and then of course Obama and they was and then again like the Obama administration the workers party administrations both Lula and Juma had all kinds of problems um, but then there is this this revenge in Brazil against the poor, what in, and then in the US. Um, so to me, I, when I look at what's happening in Brazil, I, I I have that in mind, right? What is it? Number one, you know the conditions. Why why those two? Um, why Bolsonaro? Why Bolsonaro at the same time as Trump? What kind of what what's being done in Brazil now? If you know. Bolsonaro may not be reelected, who knows, whenever it comes about. But some things are being done, are being made possible um, in this moment that we, we don't know yet. In the same in the US, we don't know the extent of it yet. Um, and uh, yeah, so I mean the, the the difference that in Brazil is thinking about the, the pandemic, it's it's so I mean, on the one hand, it's so horrible, much more because of uh, health, the situation of health services in Brazil. That's on the one hand. But then on the other hand, what I have been able to see also and in, in, uh, in small ways take part, the different kinds of, um, a different kind of political mobilization, which 
became more explicit uh, in, these, in the, the first weeks of, of the pandemic, which led like different practices and modes of self-organizing led by women, led by black women in the, in the black territories in Brazil, so in the Quebradas in Sao Paulo, the favelas uh, in, in, uh, in Rio. And it is an, it is an interesting um, situation because they are, they, they have, um, you know, some of them are artists, uh, they all have college education, they are professionals who did not move from from the, the, the places. Like I, I moved when I when I was started doing my main and I lived in Brazil, I moved out of my neighborhood. These women they stayed in their neighborhood. They're organizing um in that in, in the space. In uh, in Rio they have been one of one of the, the groups that I know uh Solidariedade das Oeste and I know them because they covered my the neighborhood where I grew up so I join them um, and uh, they have been able to pressure the state through the the, the judiciary to uh, you know facilitate some things they have been able yeah anyway so so that is that the um, some of them call their mode of organizing they use quilombo which is a name for runaway slaves uh, communities uh, in, 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 Port in Brazil, this is a Portuguese word, and they call the, the, the strategy quilombar, like, you know, the strategy is like that of the quilombos. So that is that, right? And they, in the words, I also, two things that are important about this um, um, organi organizing, they're not organizations, it's organizing, is that they have no relationships to the political parties, which is, you know, always a problem. <laughs> and uh, and also do not repeat either much of the language, and I don't know so much about the practices because I'm not there, I'm with them, mostly online, of uh, previous social movements, in particular the social movements that act, end up, you know, occupy positions of power during the Lula and Juma administration. So. I think that is that is that it's some it's something else, um, and uh, and it, it is important, and and, and can, I can't be denied that it, it you know they would not have been there if it weren't for the workers' party administrations, right? Affirmative action and different kinds of uh, policies of so, social inclusion policies. I'm talking badly about them, but they you know it's true. Have to acknowledge that, but then at the same time. They are different. I don't know what they are. Actually, I, I don't even know if I want to know exactly what they are. I'm just happy they are <laughs> and uh, and supporting them. And I think they need they need support. Um, and we I think we'll figure out that uh, you know. But it's yeah. This is a good thing about this, the horrible situation in Brazil, the impossible situation in Brazil. Um, yeah, I remember when um, uh, Lula got interviewed by Glenn Greenwald, there was this really interesting moment in which Glenn was asking, uh, why is it that um, the upper classes hated you so much? Because they actually did well, you know, like uh, Lula was, you know, by no means a socialist. Uh, and uh, he responded, well, they were resentful of the fact that now you'd go in the airport and you'd see black people and poor people, and uh, they were resentful of what they felt was a pressure on their status. 
um this really made me think about this uh uh you know like how capitalism functions in this uh you know like in you know this libido economy that exists in excess of the you know actual economy where of course you always have this kind of matrix of uh, you know like uh, value and deva- you know devaluation and devaluation and in order for something to have value something else has to be devalued so of course you know like uh, uh in order for like someone to feel to feel to be that he is a member of the upper class he cre- clearly needs to you know like have a devalued underclass you know that's so, where it yeah. that's where the the value is extracted from it you're taking us back to the beginning of our conversation both think in terms of that extra va- you know the value the ex- extraction you know the material aspect and then that other aspect of it which you know we're trying to temporality but also which again is tied to the the, the finitude right yeah that the, the scarcity um mode of thinking and then yeah but then in brazil that is also <laughs> i remember when i was uh, my first year in the college um at the beginning the, the inaugural aula inaugural the master class that was given by darcy ribeiro who's a famous brazilian anthropologist leftist was just coming back from exile and um and then i never forgot when he was describing the, in the middle of his talk, talking about the Brazilian elites, and he is saying that the, the problem with the Brazilian elites is that they do not even know how to be a, a dominant class because they eat the subaltern, uh, they devour the subaltern. Um, so, I think that is so much in operation in Brazil too. <laughs> Okay, then we would like to thank our guest, Denise Ferreira da Silva, for this uh, wonderful talk. And uh, we would say goodbye to our listeners and hope to see you again in the next podcast of our series. Thank you.